If you would, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we find ourselves there again. Uh, and just before I prayed, I did remember one other thing, and namely that uh, we also, we finished our baptism class this week, and so we'll uh, begin our membership class uh, next week. Remember, uh, many of you have already expressed interest, uh, so be ready to come next week. And uh, the membership class does not make one a member, so if you're still trying to decide or just curious about what is the position of Newtown Bible Church about membership, then join the class and bring your questions. Uh, the uh, as those know, uh, I'll keep talking until somebody interrupts, so the hope is that it'll be a discussion, and I love the dialogue, um, so come, come ready for that. We, we always have such a good time together. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we began this last week. We're going to, again, find ourselves here this morning, and let me introduce it by just reminding us what was mentioned uh, before, but... And namely this, that worship is at the heart of what it means to know God. It's, it's actually at the heart of what it means to be human. We were created to worship. That's not a new thought for many of you. We were, were hardwired for worship. We are designed by being made in the image of God to worship. But for a Christian particularly, it is at the heart of what it means uh, to know God. We were created to worship him. We're familiar with Jesus' words that God seeks true worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what God seeks. That's at the heart of what it means uh, to know him. Worship, and this is particularly worship from a Christian sense, is a whole person response to the revelation of God, who God is. It's our whole person. So it's our whole mind, our whole heart, our whole affections, our will, everything in response to who God is. We, we see him in his glory and we respond with all of who we are. If we were to put that in simple language, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. It is, at first then, an apprehension of God, a comprehending of God, a, a sensing, a tasting, a seeing, a hearing of his glory as it's revealed in Christ. But worship is, while first an internal response, it has an external manifestation. It has, in fact, throughout the history of man, even a liturgy. In a liturgy, there's high church and low church. Some of y'all might hear that. High church means that there's a lot of liturgy, a lot of formality in the way that people express worship to God. Low church would be less formality, but nonetheless, both have a liturgy. We do. We sing this many songs. We pray at this time. We read scripture here, and we do these kind of things. That is, that is our liturgical worship, you could say. And so it, it includes both external and I mean, internal first, but also external realities. And because it involves both, that actually means then that it can come with a certain danger as well, or dangers, I should say. And one of those key dangers is this, is that the external can always or, or can often or can easily, I should say, become a replacement for a concern of the internal. That's just our human nature. We have a tendency to be satisfied externally with what we do and often to the neglect of the heart. That clearly was what was at the center of the issue with the nation of Israel throughout their history, but particularly when Jesus came and revealed that you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from me. They were diligent with external worship, not so much with internal worship. And we can read those passages in 
the Old Testament or the Gospel. That one is quoting from Isaiah 29. But we can read those passages and go, well, yes, that's true. And, and if you were to kind of use that category of they, they weren't the church, but high church or low church, uh, you'd say that's high church. It was a very formal religious expression of worship to the nation of Israel. And so it was just very easy for them to see that as what made them acceptable to God. But we can do that as well. As a church, we can become very satisfied and comfortable with going through the motions of the external while neglecting the reality of the heart, the reality of what we're truly bringing to God in our affections. One said this, do we really mean what we say when we stand and worship in the house of God? It is easy to read a psalm or sing a hymn, as we just did, or confess a creed, as some churches do, we have on occasion, Without ever thinking about what it means, sometimes even a prayer can be prayerless. Simply repeating pious words does not mean that our words come from a pious heart. Simply repeating words of worship does not mean that our heart actually worships. Now, there is one sense in any kind of worship that we bring to God, we bring with it uh, our sin. We do not offer to God on our own merits any worship that is acceptable on its own. In other words, we do not bring anything to God that does not itself already need to be cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ. We have nothing on our own that we bring him that is on its own righteous. In fact, any worship that we bring to God is because God has made that worship acceptable through Christ, through the death and the resurrection of Christ, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, who enlivens and holds and upholds our faith to do whatever we do, so that whatever we do, we do by faith in Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, and outside of him we have no righteousness. And so there's a sense in which anything we bring to God is only acceptable because it's been purified in Christ. And so what we bring to him is the sincerity of our faith. We bring to him the sincerity of our faith, the sincerity of our trust in Christ, who is made and who makes our worship acceptable to God. Now, this reality does not lessen our call to sincerity, but it actually heightens it. When we understand that, that means what we bring to God is humble worship. Humble worship. A worship that comes with a proper sense of our indebtedness to him. And the fact that we come with our sin, but through our trust in Christ, we are able to offer God sincere hearts of love and expressions of praise that he accepts. We realize that we can only come to God in Christ. It means that our worship then will be full of gratitude and a desire to honor him who has extended us grace. I remember reading a long time ago in Francis Schaeffer, I forget which book it was, but he made this statement, and it always stood out with me because it was so shocking to me, and and here I remember this many years later. Uh, He said, what is one of the first things that we'll say when we get to heaven? What is one of the first things that he said? And so, you know, you might, whatever you have going through your mind. But he said this, and and the longer I meditate on it, I'm like, that's exactly right. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. What else is there to say? We have received a gift. And so gratitude is at the heart of our worship. We come merely to say thank you to God, to give him gratitude, a gratitude that's expressed in the wholeness of our life. It means that our worship will then be filled with grace and hope 
because we long to hear from him who has redeemed us. We long to hear his word. We long to sing about him. We long to pray about him. We long to meet with each other who have a shared love in him. We long, our souls do, for fellowship and grace. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, outside of all of those things, the reality of our faith and the reality of our worship is shown by this. The consistent effort of our lives to live consistently with and to conform to what we profess on Sunday. That's the ultimate expression of the reality of it, is that when we leave here and we sing these high and these pious words, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, your presence encourages me, how great is our God, his kingdom is coming. It means that when we leave these walls then on Sunday morning, that our life outside of that, in between Sundays, is an effort to live consistent with that to conform with the Christ whom we've just expressed praise to. It means then that it's not something that we do and then we go off and live our lives to come back and do this thing that we should do as Christians. It means it is the very definition of our life, what we proclaim. Worship then is our whole life response to God. So we can't profess great things on Sunday morning and go out and live as if that's the most trivial part of our life as God is an addendum to our true agenda, as if he's an add-on or an extra. And it's really to this reality that Ecclesiastes draws us into this morning in chapter 5. It's really to this reality of what does that mean to offer to God worship and what is the warning he gives here about coming to God with external worship that does not have a sanctifying effect on the heart, that doesn't change us inside, And that's no different for them as it is for us because it is our human nature to to get tripped up uh, in this area. And so the theme of this passage is this. The fear of God is the beginning of meaning and wisdom. And so let's read the passage. We'll read chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And then uh, we'll pick it up and continue where we left off last week. Verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard at your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words." When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather... Fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. We noted last week here that, in first, that he instructs us that we are to fear God. God. Fear God is at the beginning of meaning, and it is the beginning of wisdom. 
We're familiar with the second part of that from the book of Proverbs. He repeats it twice in that book. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God is at the heart of what it means to know him. It's at the heart of what it means to offer him genuine reverence. And here, the fear of God is marked by how we approach him in the rituals of our worship. And as we noted, God is concerned then with how we approach him. And how we approach him in the heart attitude at which we approach him and at which we approach his word is a reflection of our truest thoughts of God, what we really do think about him and about the gospel, ultimately for us, the gospel. The spiritually foolish approach him without considering his holiness and the condition of their heart. This is where he says, remember the house of God? It is to come then to the presence of God. This would have been for Solomon, the temple. In the Old Testament, it would have been the tabernacle. We looked at an example of Jacob when he had the vision of the dream. The idea of the presence of God, although the shape of that presence in terms of the worship of Israel progressed, again, from that to the tabernacle to the temple. But the idea there is it is the place where God has uniquely manifested his presence. And so when the people come, they're coming to God, they're coming into his presence. And so he says, draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Rather, do not come in with your own agenda, but rather to hear from the God of the universe, to offer to him a sincere heart. And to not do that is to then offer a foolish sacrifice or the sacrifice of fools is the idea. And the sacrifice of fools is one, a sacrifice, in this case, that would have been prescribed worship, the animal sacrifices primarily, what he has in mind, but it would be done out of a lack of the fear of God, and that's what spiritual foolishness is, is to lack the fear of God. And so that we, we looked at, and we considered just a couple of examples of how God, at two epochs in the establishment of the worship of his people, he made that point very clear. That was in Leviticus 10, with Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and then in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, the establishment of the church, the beginning days of the church. He says there, I'm going to pick it up from there and look at the last part of verse 1. He says, for they do not know they are doing evil. They do not know they are doing evil. That is a description of many within those who identify as the people of God. They do not know they are doing evil. This is a shocking and a frightening statement, really. It means then that they're thinking, of course, that they're offering to God true worship, but in fact, what they are not. They're coming with what they think is acceptable as righteousness, and in fact, God is merely evaluating them as being spiritual fools. Now, the question then is, Why do they not know that they are doing evil? Why do they not know that they are doing evil? Well, the first simple answer to that is because, again, they are preoccupied with themselves. They're not coming to worship preoccupied with who God is and what they're offering to God. It's the one who comes to God preoccupied with themselves, preoccupied with their own agenda, their own thoughts, their own ways, their own concerns. If we were to borrow, if you remember this from... Last week, they come with a moral, therapeutic, deistic view of God. They are viewing worship merely as something to exhibit morality, to deal with felt feelings of feeling better, and with very vague views of who God is in his holiness and his majesty. 
They do not know they are doing evil. Why do they not know they are doing evil? Because they are preoccupied with themselves and too preoccupied to contemplate the greatness of God or to care enough to consider whether their worship is acceptable. Look, if there's no fear of God, then that means something else is going to be filling our heart. If we're not coming with a heart filled with the fear of God and reverence for God, then it's filled with something else. There's something going on there. We're not coming neutral. Nobody's neutral when we come. One summarized it this way. And caught it well. It says, The whole line refers to those who perform the rituals of worship without any deliberate intention to bring the whole self before God in an attitude of reverence and awe. They give careless observance of religion, unattached to anything genuinely Godward, any genuinely Godward movement of the soul, and enacted out of custom, peer pressure, or habit. And so the obvious question is, how do you? How do I, how do we prepare ourselves to worship God? How do we prepare ourselves to worship God? How do you prepare your heart to come here and sit in the pew and to listen to what God is going to say from his word to be with his people? Do you just show up and wing it? Do you show up with a thousand other concerns that you're ready to attend to once church service is over and you have the time to do it? Or do you come with a genuine heart that longs to meet with God here and to meet with his people? Now, this is incredibly important because it is amazing the capacity that we have to deceive ourselves on this point. It's an amazing capacity we have at self-deception. For those who self-deceive themselves who are actually outside of God's saving grace and yet are religious... And those who truly are saved and know that internal change of the Holy Spirit and a true love for Christ and yet offer him so little of what he deserves. It's really amazing for us to do this and that's why it's good to focus on it. It's why this is here. Now the key errors that we have, and I'll just list three and I'll talk about some of them a little more, but is this. When we do this, the, the, how do we err in deceiving ourselves in this way? Let me just mention three. One is because we have a natural tendency to think that God is pleased with outward deeds. It's just, it's crazy, but we do, even when we know better. We have a tendency to fail to grasp the holiness of God and the depth of our sinfulness. In other words, worship is just expected. It can become almost trite, and we forget we're coming before a holy God. Remember, that's what God emphasized at the establishment of worship, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we have a natural tendency to rest self-satisfied in our own hearts. Self-satisfied. Not too different than the Pharisee in Luke 18, who said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, and so on and so forth. He was completely satisfied. No grasp, truly, of the holiness of God, or of his own sin, or of grace. Let me give you one example in the Old Testament. And I'm going to not spend too much time here. It's tempting, but I do want to give you just an example. And there's, there's many examples that we could go to. We looked at Malachi just briefly last week, where those who were bringing to the temple of God these defamed, these blind and lame kind of sacrifices, and he's saying, your governors wouldn't even be satisfied with this, and you think the king of all of the earth is going to be satisfied with this? You think this demonstrates a fear in my name? But now I want to take you to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. And again, we're just very broadly, briefly, look at this. But he's addressing the people who are very committed to worship and to the externals of worship. And listen to some of the really surprising kind of language of how he describes what their thinking is in the worship that they're offering to him. 
So at first, he's speaking and giving instructions to the prophet. Verse 1, cry loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Now what's going to strike you, first of all, is that his declaration of their transgression in the house of Israel is a declaration of their sin in their worship. Not outside of their worship, but in their worship. He says this, and this is how he describes it, verse 2. He says, yet... They seek me day by day, and they delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of God. They ask me for just decisions, and they delight in the nearness of God. That sounds like pretty good worship, doesn't it? This is the striking language. And they say, why have we fasted, verse 3, and you do not see? And why do we humble ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, God says, You find your desire and drive hard all of your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. And you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth as an ashes? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, do you think because you put on the external signs of repentance, that that means you've actually repented and God accepts it? Do you think because you put on the mere show of wanting the nearness of God and just decisions that you really are seeking the righteousness of God? This is the contrast, verse 6. This is the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, you're doing all of this stuff, but as a nation, you're living in complete opposition and contradiction to the righteousness of the law. There's no love. It's kind of like you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the rarer things. Justice, mercy. You're doing all this stuff, but your life isn't transformed. You're still oppressing those who are weak. You're not caring for those who are needy. You're not truly repentant of heart. He says in verse 8, though, but he with a word of hope, but if you do those things, then your light will break out like the dawn. You, your, recovery, your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your real guard, rear guard. And then you will call on the Lord and you will answer and then you will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and he goes on. Give yourself to the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then your light will arise in darkness and your gloom like the midday. And he goes on. In other words, you're coming to the house of God. You're you're saying that you want nearness, you want justice, you want to pursue righteousness. But if your life when you leave doesn't conform to what you've professed when you're at the temple gates, as it were, or in the church, then, then the worship is not acceptable. One said this. Now, speaking on the passage of Isaiah 53, or 58, excuse me, verse 3. But as he's saying this, see if we, we find ourselves in here somewhere. They were trusting in the outward merits of religious exercises and not in the living God. The question also reveals pride. In other words, when they ask God, why weren't you doing this? The why they ask in effect should not be pleased. Why they ask in effect, should God not be pleased with our worship? Have we not done all that the law prescribes? 
Hence, they are placing more confidence in that worship than in God himself. Sometimes we can get that as like, I went there. Why is God still not fixing my life? Why is God not giving me the things that I'm asking in prayer? I went, I'm doing all the right things, aren't I? I'm doing the things that I should. Why is God not taking away my my fears and my burdens and my other things? Why is God not doing his part? I've done my part. That would be the attitude. We're familiar with that. Listen to the second part. He goes on. They have combined worship with their own pleasure. When their hearts should be directed in meditation toward God, they have found time for their own pleasure. The service of God was not going to interfere in any way with the service that they felt was due to themselves. They could worship God and carry on their pleasure and work at the same time. In other words, it was an add-on. The worship that they offered to God was not actually something transforming them at the level of their desires and their soul. And again, this is the word to us. Is it transformative? In what way, in what real and practical way do we see our desires being shaped and the longings of our heart by the worship that we offer on Sunday? That's the discerning question. In what way do we actually see it changing the way that I think or seek to think? Things that I actually feel and want in life and in this world. The way that I actually pursue Christ. In what practical, real, internal way does the worship that we bring reflect that? I know sometimes we hear a common complaint. We've seen this. We've, we've heard it. You hear it. I'll just won't be specific, but... Uh, you know, you go to church, and there's sometimes you see people in the praise band, praise God, and the music and the whole deal, and they go out and they live a life that's like, weren't you the one just singing? What in the world just happened to this? I remember working sometime when I uh, almost said had a real job. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my job that I had had a lot of people, you know, uh, that, that you'd meet a variety of people. And so often, uh, you know, there'd, there'd be some who profess Christ and Christians. And, and this one thing I remember always standing out to me is uh, I was, the, you know, this resident Christian there. And so they would, you know, want to come and, and say something. I remember many times, many within the charismatic movement, particularly, and this, this just always struck out, stuck out to me, and they would they'd come and they'd tell me all of these wonderful experiences that they had. Hey, I just want to tell you, like when I was at service, you know, about the healing or tongues or whatever and, you know, these great things that were happening. And then you look at their life during the week and you're like, it's not holy. And, and one person was telling me and sharing me with that one time, and I said, well, that's an amazing thing because I would have never known you were a Christian by living with you all week. I said, isn't it interesting that in Scripture, God uses holy people, righteous people. How do you square up these examples that you're saying with the life that you're living? And then they started with all kinds of excuses, but the point was made. So the question, the point is here then, it's not the, the exuberance that we have. It's not some ecstatic experience. It's not even really that we cried a whole lot at this one song. Man, I was crying so much. The tears were streaming. And that's good. That can be genuine. We should have emotions. I cry uh, sometimes, and you do. But the question is, what a practical effect does that have on our life? How do we go out and live afterwards? This is what Solomon is causing us to look at. Go to listen, don't offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. And I will just say this briefly and move on here. That it's, it's no different in the church. 
Uh, I'll just remind this to you of this uh, passage. We won't turn there. But in Matthew chapter 7, you remember, many will say to me on that day, you can finish the words, couldn't you? Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? These were religiously committed and devoted people. And it's always interesting. I remember a pastor one time bringing this out. And it stood with me. It's interesting that all of those things that are claimed that are part of the charismatic movement, many in the charismatic movement, isn't that interesting? Didn't we do these things in your name? Didn't we have some kind of great sense of the power of God? And what does he say to them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You did not do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It wasn't with the righteousness that began the Sermon on the Mount that said, Blessed are the pure in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are mourning over their sin. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It wasn't that is doing the will of the Father, having a treasure that is in heaven, walking in sincerity and not hypocrisy, of showing love to our enemies and so forth. And so we need to be very aware of that. Do not... Go into the house of God hasty. And then, and then he addresses here uh, the, the expression of that fear of God, particularly in the matter of prayer in verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Uh, I think this was said this morning. For some reason, it's in my head. I haven't heard it. But prayer, maybe it's something I read. But prayer is, you know, prayer is a normal part of our worship. It's what we do when we come together. It's what we do as Christians when we sit at the dinner table, if you get up early in the morning or whatever. It's what we do corporately. It's what we do privately. Prayer is an essential part of what it means. It's like breathing for the Christian who has been brought into this intimate fellowship with the Father and with the Son by the Spirit. In the spirit. So prayer is normal, but prayer then can become routine. But prayer is one of the most amazing realities to think that we in our smallness and littleness get to bow our head and speak to the infinite, majestic, and holy God of the universe. And to think that we are speaking to a God who, if he left things to go as they were, should be our judge and condemner, not our Father. And yet, the one who should be our judge, whom we should tremble and fear, is the one we get to approach with the stunning privilege of fellowship. The stunning privilege to have him know, to know that he hears us and he cares and he listens. And in fact, in his son, that he loves us. So that Jesus could say, I don't say that I'll ask the Father on your behalf because the Father loves you even as he loves me. Why? Because you've loved me. So it's, it's an extension of his love for the son that goes out through the son to us. And he treats us as children, as sons and daughters. It's an amazing reality of adoption and many things there in union with Christ. But the point is, is that he brings us into this intimate fellowship with himself. And in prayer, we have that great privilege to come to him in prayer. It reflects his nature. He's a God of relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. His purpose in creation being made in his image was to reflect that image and to have fellowship and redemption. 
here that he had redeemed a people that he could bring to come into his presence and pray. In this case, in the temple, so much more us by the spirit who indwells us. But he says this, do not be hasty in word. Do not be hasty in word. And the first thing he does is say, when we come to prayer, we need to have then the right perspective. He's going to say we need to have the right perspective and we need to have the right practice. But with the right perspective, do not be hasty in word, impulsive in thought, to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, don't come to prayer tritely or irreverently, but understand who we are in the place in the presence of God. Now, there are two key aspects here, and I'll just mention these. There's two key aspects here, and these are theological terms, but I'm going to mention them to you because we can grasp them. They're not the fancy Latin words that sometimes are used. But they are, they are two truths that are important for us to grasp that come out in many, many ways in, in Scripture. And that is that when we come to God, we come to him with a sense of his transcendence and his eminence. Transcendence speaks of his otherness, his greatness, that he is God. He is not like us. He sits in the heavens. He rules over creation. It is to speak of the holiness of God in that aspect of his holiness that means he's other than we are. There's his moral holiness, which means he's utterly separate from sin. But it also means his holiness that by the very nature of his being, he's separate than us. He is infinite. I looked at one morning, I got up and I looked at all of the pictures on the Hubble spacecraft. It was, I was waiting for the coffee to brew and I was too tired to read, I think, <laughs> with comprehension. But I had this on my mind. And so I looked at these pictures and it's like, I was just there and I'm like, God, I don't even understand this. How do you understand like this cloud and it's, you know, uh, 15 light years high or whatever. I mean, I, you can't even comprehend that kind of greatness. And yet God spoke that with a word, such as his power. God upholds it by the word of that power, that powerful word, Hebrews 1, 3. Both all things by the word of his power or the powerful word. He upholds it without any energy expent. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't need an extra drink of water. He doesn't wipe off sweat. He doesn't say, how much longer do I have to do that? He does it by the mere power inherent to his nature as God. That's his holiness and his transcendence, his glory. And there's a sense of our smallness in that way. And yet he's a God who is imminent, which is to speak of his nearness. He is a God who is far off, and yet he is a God who is near he is a near, certainly in his presence, by omnipresence. We covered this in Psalm 139. But when Scripture speaks of that near and far, it means in terms of how our experience of the relationship to him. So he can be far off from the sinner and yet near to those who are his own and humble in heart. He's not spatially more near or less, but in the experience, he's further away from one nearer to another. And so the eminence of God speaks of the nearness and the expression of his nearness to his people. There's so many places to go, but let me uh, give you just one passage. Isaiah chapter 57. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. A couple of passages. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, transcendence, okay? His otherness, his glory, his holiness, his majesty, his unsearchableness. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and a holy place. But then listen to what he says. This is imminence. This is his nearness. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit 
in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's put this into a real picture. That means the infinite God of the universe who created those galaxies, some they have clusters of galaxies where there are thousands or millions of galaxies. Galaxies, galaxies, not stars, but galaxies in just one little portrait. And he spoke that into existence. He upholds it by the word of his power. He does it all for his own glory and his own pleasure. He does it with no extra expenditure of his power to where he gets tired or exhausted. And yet that same God is the one that through Christ, through his redemption, through his purposes in creation, meets with a little piece of dust and flesh with a dim room with a Bible open in front of them at the kitchen table in their house on this little blue planet. That's the idea. I am the high and exalted and holy one who's greater than anything. If you could have 10,000 Hubble telescopes, they couldn't even begin to say, but the fringes of my ways, as Job said. And yet, he meets with you individually. He meets with you to listen to you individually as you pour out the anxieties and the cares of your heart, as you ask him for the needs and concerns that you have in your life, as you pour out and cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. That's the picture here in prayer. This infinite, holy, grand, majestic, unsearchable, transcendent God is a God who is near. But who is he near to? To revive the spirit of the lowly, those who are contrite, those who come to him with humility, and he revives their heart. Listen to what he says in chapter 60. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? My hand made all of these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who comes with a right heart in the fear of God. That's the one I look. And guess what? That is the one whom I have compassion on. I have intimate fellowship with. Whom I meet with intimately and personally. Now, just as a footnote here, in in the spirit of Ecclesiastes 5, we can get this wrong sometimes. And when we put eminence before transcendence, we end up putting man's priorities in the place of God's glory and majesty. So if we, again, if we're just to look at that through a theological grid of what we see sometimes is we forget transcendence. We make that secondary to eminence, but we can't. There's a proper order, even as those verses say. Who is the one who is intimate with us? Who is the one who meets with us? Who is the one who is tender to us in compassion? Who is the one ready to revive our heart? Who is the one ready to forgive our sin? Who is the one who is ready to embrace us when we come in confession and trust? The one who is high and exalted the one who sits on the throne, the one whose hand made everything. He's the one. So we start with transcendence, and guess what? Then we're amazed by eminence. We start with his greatness, and we're amazed by his grace. Grace should surprise us, and, I, and this is the, we labor this somewhat because grace is a shocking thing. Grace isn't, what is the, isn't the expected thing. You don't see grace in any of the false, what you expect is what you see in false religion. What you see in the God who's revealed himself in Christ, ultimately, is shocking. 
is shocking. We should come and be like, you saved even me? Even me? And of course, the greatness of this imminence and trans- or transcendence and imminence is in the person of Christ. Because we look at those same pictures and we realize that it's by the word of Christ all of those things came in. The eternal word through whom all things came into being and apart from whom nothing came into being that has come into being. And though he is the one who became flesh. And so in Christ, we have this amazing intimacy that God has enfolded us into in prayer and says that I have, he has extended himself to us such that after the resurrection, Christ could say, I go to my father and your father, my God and your God. I have brought you in as a child of God and engrafted you into this eternal fellowship that I have with the Father. And now in me and through me, you get to share in that. And prayer is where that gets to be expressed. Now that's far more than Solomon would have understood, but even then they had the idea that they get to come into the presence of God. And he says, so don't come in flippantly. One has said this, a great statement. They said, the confidence of a child must be tempered with the humility of a sinner. Isn't that great? The confidence of a child needs to be tempered with the humility of a sinner. And so that's how we approach God. And if we do, he says, then let your words be few. Let your words be few, he ends in verse 2. And this isn't a contradiction to pouring out our souls. God's not up there keeping an account of our works, our words. And this is the practice of prayer. The first is the perspective. The second is the practice is that we come contemplatively and soberly. I mean, the Psalms teach us to pour out our heart before God. We have many examples of pouring out our heart to God. We, we go and we just unleash everything that we have in our soul that is both joyful in praise and that is a burden All of these things and our struggles and our hopes, all of these things, we pour out our soul to God. We are called to do that. If you're a believer, you do that just by natural reaction because the Spirit of God in us prompts that kind of prayer and intimacy with God. So it's not a contradiction to that. What he's saying is don't be enamored with your own words and your own thoughts and don't approach prayer as a means of manipulation, trying to get God to do what you want. That's his idea. That's what pagan religion is. I manipulate God. I do this, you do this. All of Old Testament, pagan, ancient Near East religion is that. I'm going to get God to do it. You can think of the priest on the the Mount of Baal, remember, with the prophet. And they were up there. They were cutting themselves Listen to us, oh Baal, right? I'm going to manipulate. I do something and you respond. But that's not how God works. He works on grace. Let your words be few. Come reverently. You don't go in there to manipulate him. You're not trying to twist his arm. You're not trying to inform him. And certainly don't go in to prayer with our own agenda. If we go in there to prayer with our own agenda, my agenda is simply to feel better. My agenda is to get God to get these things to work out for me is to answer my prayer. And if he doesn't, then I'm going to be upset with God. You ever heard Christians say that? People who say, I'm, not, I'm upset with God. They actually have it. It, 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 it makes yours too. My blood boiled. The thing is they, these things where they have so influenced by the psychology movement where they actually have things where you go out and you just tell God. And they have, they have meetings in some of the more extreme forms where they, you just unleash all of your anger at God. You get it out. He's a big, they'll say, he's big God. He can take it. I think we'd have other things to say about that, but no, no, no. We don't come to God in that way. We come to God with reverence. We come to God 
not with many words, not the idea here with Solomon is not with our own agenda, not with some sense of manipulation, but we come with reverence. We don't fill up our time with words spoken out of formality, a prayerless prayer. We've all experienced that where you pray and you've done all the things and you've said it and you leave and you're totally like you couldn't remember what you said two minutes later, right? We have prayer that we need to repent of. I've had that. I'm sure that you have. I'm probably not alone. Prayer that you need to repent of, like we came with such a wrong heart. He says, don't do that. Don't be, let your words be few. Remember God is in heaven. You are on earth. Come humbly. Pour out your soul to him. Seek him with all of your heart. Seek him with all of the desire that you have for truth and for God and to know him. Seek him in that way is the right way. But don't come with this mere repetition of words or as duty. And then he gives us a summary statement in verse 3, which is um, proverbial. He says, For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. What? Well, the dream here is not a prophetic or revelatory dream. We sometimes want to take it that way. That's, that's not how Solomon means it. There's two ways that he could be, mean this here. He could mean it dream in the sense of like a metaphor. In other words, we come to God with our own aspirations, what we dream of, those things that we hope for, kind of our own agenda. He couldn't mean it that way. We don't don't come in there, and then the comparison would be is the dream comes through much effort. In other words, all the things that we're working for in life, which is compared to the voice of a fool through many words, like a voice of a fool who has no fear of God, their own agenda, and so they're just spouting off words, and that could be the comparison that he makes. It's, It's a tough one here. Or he could mean this, that somebody who gives all of their life to going their own way and to doing their own thing, regardless of their outward expressions of religion, it even consumes them in their dreams. Even the meaninglessness and the vanity of that kind of life even preoccupies them in the sleep. And and the comparison then would be there in the same way. So the, the foolishness and the preoccupations of a fool are known by their many words as the preoccupations of a of the one who's living for themselves is made known in their dreams. So in either way, it could be taken. But that's the main point, however, is this, is that the spiritually foolish go to God with their own agenda and their own plans. It's a way to summarize what he's just said. Rather than coming reverently and to listen, to set our mind and align our mind and affections with his will. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I'm going to end it up today, just on this point, as we come to the Lord's table. Uh, is this, and we are taking a little bit of time, and usually we're going to take a larger section, because I think these are such crucial issues. They are such important issues, and we'll, we'll discuss the issue of vows next week. I, I thought maybe we'd get there, but we didn't. But here's, here's this, okay? So it means then that when we come to him, we come reverently, and, and here's, God gives us these amazing promises in prayer. He gives us these amazing promises in prayer. Um. What are some of the ones you can think of? John 14. Let me just read these to you. And I want to connect it to here, what, he's, what, what Solomon is teaching us here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, he says this. You remember this is in his upper, uh, upper room discourse that Christ had with his disciples. He says this. He says after he responded to uh, Thomas about... Lord, tell us where you're going. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he says this, uh, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. The works there are not in terms of power. Jesus raised the dead, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he caused the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's not talking about you're going to do something more than that. But you're going to be greater in their scope and their effect, which ultimately is looking forward to the proclamation of the gospel. But here he says in verse 13, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's that's an amazing promise. And then he says in his epistle, John, in 1 John chapter 5, These things I've written to you believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have before him. Listen, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you pick up on two little phrases? One in John 14 and one in John 5. John, so one part is a blanket statement. Oh, wow, great. Because personally, I'm not really that into cars, but I would like a Porsche. So does that mean that I can go in and say, God, I want this Porsche? Uh, Whatever. There he says it. It's right there, black and white. It's in the Bible. You're denying God, right? Well, people say that. Um, People say that. It doesn't mean that. Listen to the way he qualifies it. Verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13. So that, purpose statement, it can mean other things, but that's what it means here. The result, the end of it, The purpose of our request is the idea of our asking is this, and of Jesus answering, his promise to answer is this, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Father is not glorified in the Son by what car I drive, right? He's glorified in the Son through our faithfulness to the Son, our obedient lives. How does he qualify it in 1 John chapter 5? Whatever you ask according to my will, whatever you ask according to his will, he hears us. It is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That is to say that the Son is glorified and then the Father is glorified in the Son's glory, which is the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit to glorify the Son so that the Father would be glorified. And that we ask according to his will. We ask according to his will. So just very quickly here, how do we pray according to his will? I'm just going to rapid fire these. But One, that means when we pray according to his will, that we pray with right motives that sincerely want our lives to conform to the truth and for him to be glorified in our lives. It means we have to sincerely have this request within the bigger picture of wanting our lives to bring glory to him. James 4.3, you'll remember, you ask... And you do not have, why? Because you ask that you can spend it on your own pleasures. God doesn't hear that prayer. Do you not know that friendship with the world, to make yourself a friend to the world, is to make yourself an enmity, at enmity with God? God isn't interested in your passing worldly desires. He just told us in Titus 2 to deny worldly desires. He's not interested in that. He says, we pray that the Father may be glorified, that our, we pray according to his will when the motive of our heart is sincerely and honestly that what our, the, the request that his giving us that request would fit within the bigger picture of him receiving glory from our lives. That, that's the right motive. 
The right motive then will be marked by obedient love. In verse 15, right after he made that statement, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And all throughout that section there, one of the keys, I mean, in chapter 13 too, but to 14, 15, and 16 is this. You keep my commandments. You keep my commandments. You keep my commandments. Who is the one that I will come and disclose myself to him? The one who keeps my commandments. Who is the one that I and the Father will come by the Spirit to make our abode in him? Verse 23 of chapter 14. The one who keeps my commandments. Who is the one who abides in me? The one in whom my word dwells. Who is the one that knows my joy and my love? The one who keeps my commandments and my commandments. Singular that you love one another even as I have loved you as the friend who lays down his life for others. So it is an obedient life. It is a motive that really honestly wants God to be honored with our request, if he answered our request, that honestly does promote his purposes in our life. The right motive then will be marked from a life that reflects that desire by being obedient and seeking obedience. The one whose life generally is marked by keeping his commandments because of love for him. The right motive or praying according to his will with the right motive means that we will bow and humble and submit our will to his. And who was the greatest example of that? Right? Yeah, I saw y'all mouth it. Jesus. He's in the garden. If this cup can pass from me, but if not, not my will, but your will be done. That's, that's humbling, but that's what it means to pray according to the will of God. One, it means that we pray with the right motive, and we can honestly say that. And sometimes we might think that that's the, our prayer, but God, through his providence, does things and brings about circumstances that teaches us that that really wasn't our motive. When we're angry or we grumble at God when we didn't get it, or we're overly despondent and discouraged, then, we're, then that's kind of a red light that goes, eh, I probably wasn't truly asking for his glory. Or I wouldn't have this result by his answer. I can't worship, if I can't worship him in the answer, then I probably wasn't asking it in the right way to begin with. The design of prayer is to align our hearts with his, not to align his heart with ours. True prayer does not bend God to our way, but it bends our way to his. That's the idea through fellowship. Two, and then again, just briefly. We pray according to his will when we pray according to his word where his will is revealed. Peter said, where shall we go? You have the words of life. We pray when we pray according to scripture. I would encourage you this. This is a sermon on its own. But we pray with open Bibles. We pray with open Bibles. We pray with God teaching us the things that we are to pray about. We pray with God teaching us how we're to pray, what we're to pray for, the things we should be asking. We use his words back to him. We see that in the prayers of Jesus even throughout the Gospels and others. We pray according to his will when we pray according to what he has revealed his will to be. That's how we pray according to his will. Again, that's a whole... Thing. And, and that can get so muddled if we don't have our lives constantly exposed to his word. So if we want to pray aright, we have to make sure that our whole life and our whole mind is being shaped by his word, being shaped by his truth, being shaped by who he is. It's so easy to have a mingling of our own desires and righteous desires And it's so easy to have more than we can realize sometimes our desires shaped by the world rather than by the word of God. Listen to this statement. 
uh, that, that captures this. They say this statement, many, foolish peop- many people foolishly mingle the word with vast quantities of worldly wisdom in their minds. I, I, just, I know I harp on this, but it's such a huge thing that our, we have an entire media and culture that in every way stands in principle and desire in contradiction to God's word of what righteousness is. We just do, and we're inundated with it. It's everywhere. Everything we see here is just, it's there. So we have to be very on guard with that and make sure that our thinking about sexuality, marriage, purpose in life, the church, humility is shaped by the word of God, not by our culture. Many people foolishly mingle the word with vast quantities of worldly wisdom in their minds. Though they may profess that the Bible is God's truth, they fill their minds with the denying words of the wicked and the corrupting examples of sinners. And the mockery of scoffers, instead of meditating on the word and daydreaming on the word, day, or meditating on the word day and night, Psalm 1 through 2. If, if any part of the Bible ever sounds offensive to you, red light. That means that culture and your own fleshly thinking is shaping your thoughts, not Scripture. I'm amazed at Christians who profess Christ who will openly say they're offended by aspects of God's word. They're offended by it. Anyway, a lot to say there. Let me finish this. They give, and here's the key. They give worldly media an equal or greater place in their lives in comparison to the Bible. Simple test. Sometimes this is brushed off like it's just like, well, you know, that's just what you're going to say. Compare how much time in the week we spend on social media, entertainment, TV shows, Netflix and media, media to how much time we actually spent in God's word, reading about his word, reading his word, listening to his word, listening to songs about his word, talking about his word and the truth. There, for a lot of people, we could easily sit down and spend hours and hours watching YouTube videos in a string, and get really bored talking about God after 10 minutes. There's a problem. So here's, okay. They give worldly media an equal or greater place in their lives in comparison to the Bible. It should not surprise us then when worldliness chokes out the word so that it bears no fruit in such people. And when there's a burden of our soul, do we run to alleviate the burden, the felt need with media or entertainment? Or do we run to God in his presence to teach us by his spirit and to create faith in us and to wrestle with him from the soul? So ultimately then, and here's the point, and then we're going to come into the Lord's table. Ultimately, the reality of the sincerity of our prayer and our religious displays of devotion are made evidence in our obedience and the integrity of our lives. And he's going to emphasize that next. So guard your steps as you come into the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not even know they are doing evil because they're so preoccupied with themselves. Do not be hasty in word and bring your own agenda to prayer and to worship. Be impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Have the right perspective. And therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Come having your lives and our affections and our thoughts shaped by the word of God. 
marked by reverence and purity, a life that intends to walk with spiritual integrity. And as we come to the table, we're reminded of this as well. Hopefully we resonate with that and we say true, but we also fail and we sin. Our lives don't always have the integrity that we want. Our hearts aren't always reverent as we desire. We do get distracted with the world. We do fail. And that's why when we come to the table, what is so precious about it is it's by God's design, that reminder through symbol, through symbol of who we are in Christ, of his death and his resurrection on our behalf, of his presence among us as a spirit, of his promise of a coming kingdom that he's bringing when he returns on that day appointed by the Father. And so we come together and we're encouraged because we want these things, we're hopefully growing in these things, but we realize we have a lot more to go. We're not yet what we should be. And so we come to the table, yes, in self-examination, yes, in renewed commitment, but we also come knowing that we do all of that by the grace that is supplied to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand in grace. So as I pray, and then hopefully everybody has one of these things. If anybody doesn't have it, raise your hand. George is going to... Man, we got this down. Great. Good. All right. So let me pray. My Father, we do come with hearts that want to meet with you. And we so thank you that even though we can't say that we do these things that our hearts desire perfectly, we do ask you to grow us, to, to always point us with the plumb line of your word, to conform us and bring us back to what is right and good for our souls. And Father, we do come to you realizing, even as we sing, that you are God in heaven and we delight that that is so that you are transcendent and majestic in your glory and that fills our hearts with praise. And you are a God who has come near to us that though we are sinners, though we are by nature unrighteous, Christ, by your eternal plan, has brought to us redemption. And our Lord, you submitted to the will of the Father perfectly and you did go to the cross to drink the cup that had been given to you to drink, which was the wrath for our sin. You stood in our place. Even in your bearing our sin, it was a perfect demonstration of your righteousness and obedience. And we thank you that you have made a way for us to have access to your throne, the forgiveness of sin through those who have trusted in you, the promise of life, the promise of the Spirit who indwells us to live holy and righteously in this present age. And so now as we come to the table, remind us of these glorious truths and, and point our minds and our hearts and our affections upward to where you are, even right now, not in theory, not as a phantom or a ghost or a vision or an idea, but the real, physical, resurrected Lord, the same Lord who came out of that grave, the same Lord that appeared to the disciples and then over 500 at once, the same Lord whom they saw ascend into heaven is the same resurrected, physical, glorious, majestic Lord right now at the right hand of the Father who is returning for us. And the table says, remember this. Remember it and be, find hope and encouragement as you wait for that great day. And so to that end, we ask that you would do this in our heart. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.